Malcolm Honline is the vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM and the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank you. It's good to be with you again. Appreciate that. Uh, a lot of people are uh, commenting regarding the President of the United States speech last night, and of course there are many who are upset about what they call the, the divisive nature of the speech, and there are others who are defending it as a necessary um, a proclamation or analysis of the situation here in the United States. But no matter what political front one might be on, Mr. Honline, I thought it's important to remind the audience and just to mention for a moment that these types of um, of uh, this type of um, uh, of debate, back and forth rhetoric, whatever you want to call it, is never healthy historically for the Jewish community. And therefore, I uh, I just wanted to mention that no matter what people think, and no matter how angry one might be for what he said, didn't say, what the reaction was to what he did or didn't say, etc., one must remember that this type of uh, verbal activity never seems to benefit our people in the long run. Well, political instability doesn't benefit our people. And, um, you know, the partisanship is built in and it's very exaggerated right now. In, uh, and the concern, I think, that it's being expressed by people is, is valid. The, um, com- the, the partisanship that so dominates everything when at a time when we have such critical issues confronting us, we're at the, the cusp on, the, on Iran, we're on the cusp of so many other issues that don't even get mentioned, hardly discussed at this time, is is very disturbing, and it's hard to get people's attention on it when they're so focused either on personalities or on politics or partisanship. Uh, so I think that that is fueling a lot of the concern that, that we hear. And as somebody like yourself, who not only has been in the political arena all these decades, but you know has had quite a relationship, some of which you've described, uh, on the air with President Biden, I, I have to assume that you are somewhat surprised at his tone uh, that he's taken recently in presentations like last night. Well, I think that uh, everybody's looking to the November elections. Traditionally, Labor Day is the kickoff for campaigns, whether it's presidential or congressional or others, when because of the summer people are assumed to be preoccupied with other things and not focused. I don't know if they'll focus afterwards, but uh, I think, you know, but traditionally this was the uh, beginning of the campaign season. We see it moving earlier, earlier. And in fact, the whole summer people were campaigning and right after the primaries, uh, whether it's locally or nationally, the campaign seemed to be never ending. And we, we don't have, you know, seasonal politics and the December, the, the November elections are very critical because it will determine control of Congress and other things. And the earlier lead that the Republicans seem to have and the surety that many felt, I think, is now um, tempered down and that the uh, president's response is to take the lead. And I think that we'll see much more on all sides, but uh, particularly that the there were criticisms that the Democrats didn't take it seriously enough. Uh, we see that independents, for instance, now are leaning more democratic, which could be make a big difference because you're, you're not talking about big margins in many places. And also, if, if, if one is, uh, is if, if you're going to criticize, I don't just mean you because you happened to mention it before, but if, if 
many are not focusing on the issues and instead instead are focusing on the uh, again on the tone and on the uh, uh, the atmosphere. Uh, then it has to start at the top. And the reality is that, you know, this was a campaign speech that he gave last night as opposed to addressing some of the really key issues that need to be addressed in this country. I know that your list might differ a bit from others because uh, we concentrate a lot on this conversation on things that are happening outside the country, but just the the, the domestic issues that, that people are demanding be addressed by Washington are being avoided at this time. So your, what you said earlier about, you know, some th- certain things aren't even being spoken about and they're so vital at this time, that could apply even to the President of the United States. Absolutely. I mean, the domestic agenda of the of inflation of people not being able to afford food, about the, the social revolution that is going on and values and norms, these are all very vital and critical long-term issues. Crime. And and right away, anybody who expresses a viewpoint one way or the other gets attacked and gets criticized or boxed in rather than trying to have a, a rational debate on on really vital issues affecting our children and future generations, affecting uh, the very fundamentals of, of what people uh, of our country, of uh, yeah. uh, what we stand on. You know, it's funny what you said earlier. May We may have stumbled upon what the essence of all of this is, and that is that and we used to joke that the campaign season was always extended. We used to joke that it would start, you know, a year before, et cetera. Now it's just endless. Now, you know, an election could be won, and the next morning already this campaign's happening, you know, and, and jockeying for position in terms of, uh, you know, who are going to be the candidates in both local and national elections, and it's just never ending. And it's hard it's hard to run a country to expect results for really important day-to-day matters when it's just one big campaign going on constantly in one big cycle. That's true. Yeah. And and the the diminution of the political center and that people are being forced to identify politically by party, by um, ideology, rather than looking at the substance of things and saying, let's discuss it because you have people who cross lines and, and we see it on the Iran that uh, 30 Democrats joined a group of Republicans and uh, wrote a letter to the president criticizing the Iran deal that was led by uh, Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey. Um, and then there are those who criticize them for it. But in fact, it's, it was a rational approach to a serious issue that requires that kind of thoughtful admonitions and concerns being expressed when we're heading, it seems, we're heading towards a, a deal, even though right now it looks like the Iranian response spooked some of our, our, the American interlocutors who talked about it not being helpful, not being, but we never know whether that is um, a staging or, or reality or, you know, that everybody tries to position themselves uh, on this deal because for so long we were told that it's far off and there's no deal and, you know, all of a sudden the Europeans come up with a proposal and, and we're, we were facing a deadline even of a week uh, on this. Is that deadline still in effect? No. I would say that the, well, according to the latest reports uh, overnight, the the um, administration of the people saying that the Iranian response to the U.S. response was disappointing. I think a key issue is what happens at the Inter- International Atomic Energy Agency. They're meeting in a week, uh, and the um, potential criticisms of Iran being on the agenda 
for violating all the agreements for not allowing inspections. And Iran has said that if it's not dropped, if this investigation is not dropped, then there will be no deal. So they're trying to make it conditions on it. And I think the Western interlocutors were trying to dance around it, perhaps not forcing a, a final condemnation, but not being willing to say that Italian get off the agenda. And mostly because Grassi, the head of the IEA, has been tough on it and saying that they're going to pursue it. It's, it was a clear violation, there, and they, you know, they found particles indicating uh, other advanced nuclear research. And we know from from what they're doing now that they, they they did things in spite. They opened up Natanz and put IR sixes uh, in the underground facility. They've been doing it in the overground facilities. They're doing it in Fordo, which means that they can enrich at a much faster speed. And even if we would say that they shut it down or they export the excess uranium, it, their breakout time is no longer a year. It's maybe weeks because they have the, this increased capacity and they're not asked to destroy, which is what they should do, the facilities and the facilities that they supposedly destroyed under the JCPOA number one, they did not. And we are, we are seeing the, the, more, the advancements that they, they have made, the stockpiling, and the advancements on their ballistic missile program and the fact that they're talking about putting up a series of uh, lightweight and then heavier weight um, uh, satellites, this is all part of the testing of the ballistic missile program, which has made uh, advancements. And the weaponization has also, may, may not be complete, but the essential components are there. So we're not talking about in any way the same circumstances. Second, you have a very different alliance with Russia, with China, with others, and their income because of the rise in the price of oil has taken off some of the financial pressure off the leadership because they get the first money. They, they control 40% of the economy, the IRGC and the Supreme Leader. So they are not, you know, they're not feeling the same pressure. The people are. The people are, are suffering for it. Um, there's even reports now that Russia may sell the S-300 or S-400 defense systems to Iran. I mean, there are, there are so many stories, and they, they get almost um, no, no coverage or no real assessment about what these, what these means. You know, Iran has about 93 million barrels of oil sitting in storage in various places offshore in the Gulf and Singapore near China and Venezuela. And they would sell that immediately. They would be permitted to sell it. So right away, they'd have an immediate influx in addition to the talk of $100 billion dollars in the first year and a hundred billion dollars each year, meaning a trillion dollars over, over a decade. So the, you know, we're, we're not talking about the same circumstance that we had before. Iran's military has been built up in some respects, the drones certainly, and you see that they're selling them to Russia who are using them in Ukraine, uh, weaponized uh, drones. Uh, they've used them and have demonstrated just in the last week, a big exercise using 15 different kinds of drones that they've developed. Uh, some of them, it is believed, may be based on the on Israeli rocket technology. But that's why all of this is coming to a head right now. And there's so much uh, that's at stake and the um, shifting sands in the region, the fact that the UAE is reaching out to Iran and others because they don't believe that the West is going to stand its ground. Right, and that's what they were counting on. Countries like the UAE and others thought that they finally they had a breakthrough and the United States would be there for them uh, to take a tough stand against Iran, and they're being completely disappointed by us. They're being disappointed by us. They don't 
see it. You know, there are, was positive news that the Benny Gantz, the defense minister, um, signed a contract with the U.S. Department of Defense, which will allow Boeing to sell four KC-46 refueling planes um, and also new F-35s and heavy transport helicopters, submarines is very important. But if you have to look, you see that the delivery date of the first one is until 2025. And so it's not an immediate shift. It is important long term. The sale is something Israel wanted for a long time. But it shouldn't be a tra- trade-off. This shouldn't be preparing the ground for a deal. This is something Israel should be getting because it's essential for their defense. Um, and you saw also that Gantz signed a defense deal the first time ever with Japan, which I think is a very significant uh, development, and it's it steps up cooperation in military equipment and technology. And uh, you know, I, I think last year, Japanese firms put in almost three billion dollars in eighty-five deals. So there's a lot going on between Japan and Israel. They've always played quiet, but this is uh, these are significant developments. Again, the kind of stuff that nobody even notices, and that Israel's exports and oil were up 22% last year, which is an amazing uh, statistic, and increased this year uh, as well. So there are a lot of faults with the agreement. I know people are tired of hearing the details and are hired, tired of um, – you know the the deal itself, and that's part of the ta- the the tactic is, you know, just run the clock on it, and people just you know finally give in. But the answer is that it doesn't address anything on terrorism. It doesn't address so many of the issues of the challenges that Iran um, poses both to the region, to Israel, and to the United States, and the um, uh, the, the need to to really understand in detail what this is about is essential. Well, two things that um, I uh, I get from your presentation is that I mean the first is that um, I I always suspected that there would be uh, there would be hesitancy from Washington to in fact disappoint those countries, whether it's the UAE, Saudi Arabia, others who are depending on them or at least expressing some dependence on them regarding Iran. But if you look at the U.S. track record. It's not such a uh, strange concept to uh, to not be there when other countries need them uh, in a pinch. So I guess it's not um, it's there's no guarantee that Washington's going to be there uh, for the countries that are depending on them or at least expressing publicly some type of dependence on them when it comes to Iran. And the second thing is, as you outlined, every category. Uh, I don't know how many of them are actual you know international violations because I don't know in each one of those categories that you mentioned what Iran is allowed or not allowed to do. But it sounds like no matter what it is, whether it's uh, uh, from a military perspective, a weaponization perspective, a, um, a um, uh, uh, enriching perspective, no matter what category you choose, they're doing whatever it is the West does not want them to do. They are progressing in an area completely against the wishes of, of those who are you know, trying to discipline them. And it's it's a completely across the board. It's not like they're you know uh, they're simply advancing in one area or weaponizing and they have to be stopped. There's nothing that they're doing that doesn't seem to be either in violation or against the will of the West at this point. Against the will of the West and against the agreements that they signed, and that the you know that a lot of this stuff is not reversible, as people have said. Once you have the technology and you know how to do it, the know-how can't be taken away. And you know, and and in no way has Iran diminished its 
hateful activities. It's anti-Semitism. It's it's uh, anti-Gulf countries. Uh, you saw what the UAE did by by returning an ambassador by saying they're not going to join the joint cooperative uh, aerial reconnaissance in the in the Gulf. So many other things that that go on. We see the advances they're making in South America all the time. You know the the uh, support for the Houthis for Hezbollah for Hamas, and think if they get this huge influx of money, how much of it will go to to these uh, to these countries. I mean, there's an un- almost unlimited list of um, of actions that they've taken and of issues that are outstanding and that the the deal will not a- address. And you know, and this deal has a whole different structure with a, a stage one, a stage two, a stage three, uh, with implementation day not I think four months into the deal, and they're supposed to be Iran is supposed to be finished uh, implementing all the limitations on the nuclear program and allowing IA inspections. They never allow the IA inspections to really take place. And the and U.S. is going to list, lift the secondary sanctions on Iran. Now, they're saying that one of the big issues is that removing the IAGC from the, from the list, the, the terrorism list. But if you look at some of the potential benefits that supposedly are going to be derived and the sanctions that would be lifted, uh, maybe without congressional review, the, the supreme leader and 110 Iranian officials would be removed. The 17 major Iranian banks and credit unions, 44 industrial and metal companies, and that's what we know. And the, the you know the there is a deal. There is an understanding that Congress would get to review any deal. There is uh, and there's a time deadline within five days of the uh, reaching agreement. It's supposed to be submitted to Congress. That will have 30 days. Um, to review it, which is not a lot of time. I think many will not want to see this deal come up before the congressional elections because they know that if it's a bad deal, it will it will hurt, certainly in marginal races. And, in, um, and I'm not sure that they want to really expose the full details. The members of Congress don't know the details of the deal. Maybe a couple do, but the ones I've spoken to honestly say they just don't know what, what uh, is entailed in it yet. And it's being played very close to the to the vest, but it will have to come before Congress. And then the the, the problem is that ultimately, if the president, you know, to do an override over a presidential veto would be, you'd need 67 senators, and there aren't 67 senators who will go against it. You need 17 Democrats to go against the president. You'd need, um, and generally everybody assessment is that it doesn't exist. Wow. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. <coughs> Heard on listeners sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSegal.com and the NachumSegal Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Holmline is vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us here for the weekly update. We'll talk about the uh, Israeli election in a minute. You, you got to do the Gorbachev piece with me because... Uh, it is now that he's gone. Um, it is um, fascinating to look at that period of time, especially in light of the fact that now there is this Russian-Ukraine war going on. Um, so, th- did he in fact become? I mean, some people have really simplified that 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 time period since his passing. Did he in fact become a uh, an accidental human rights champion because he was trying to save the economy of the Soviet Union? You know, there are so many assessments that have come up since his death um, and revelations from people who knew. I, I actually met him 
uh, on two occasions. And there's no doubt that what he did, the question is how he came about doing it and the motivation, whether he, he did not start off, I think, as an advocate of the dissolution of the FSU and the creation of the CIS and the um, other measures that were taken. But clearly, he, he, he committed to a path and he pursued it and defended it and did not revert under pressure to, to undo it. And of course, it changed the world. It's, it's still, the ramifications are clear and the war in Ukraine is one of those ramifications still of that period. Uh, and people, of course, are juxtaposing Putin and, and Gorbachev, Putin wanting to reassert control at least, even if not uh, occupation, but control. And he did occupy Crimea. He did occupy essentially in Georgia, the territories in Georgia. He he has taken some uh, bold moves, and and the uh, many of his former Soviet Union states are, uh, like in Central Asia, are very scared of him and and of, of the moves they take, not to to annoy him and not to to. Um, bring the wrath of, uh, of uh, Russia down on them. Right now, Russia's preoccupied, and their performance in Ukraine hasn't been so outstanding as to add to the, to, to the threat level. But it's certainly um, the, the stability in the, in the region, the fear of some of the Baltic states, others, about what could happen um, is very, very clear. So I think Gorbachev deserves the recognitions he's gotten. He, you know, he came afterwards and met spoke to Jewish audiences, spoke to other audiences, and defended what, what he did. And he deserves the credit for that. Uh, but was it, in fact, a financial issue? If, if the USSR would have been financially stable, would he have just continued? That's a good what... question. It's a very good question. And the probability is no. But um, who knows? You know, we always look back, and hindsight gives you 2020 vision. Uh, the fact is he brought about the change and the, the economic conditions were devastating at the time for, for Russia, but they're devastating right now for Russia. And yet Russia has emerged and it seems internally continuing to what, and, and a lot of that has to do with the increase in the price of oil as facilitated uh, Russia being the largest exporter of oil, not Saudi Arabia in the world. And the, um, internal conditions that uh, that they and and bypassing some of the sanctions through Iran through other illicit means uh, have been able to sustain it the people in Russia you know have proven that they can take a lot of pain but there comes a point where they start to go against the government as well and um, in terms of the uh, uh, in terms of the um uh, uh, the reaction in Russia itself. I mean, I assume there's not going to be any massive state funeral or recognition of Gorbachev the way the rest of the world is reacting to his passing. Well, there will be a, a, a formal funeral, but uh, Putin is not going. He already announced it. He issued a statement memorializing um, Gorbachev, but um, so people he's not are, going because he's not happy with what he did. Right. So people like Putin. I mean, it's not like a, it's not a recent development. They must have been fuming about it thirty years ago. Sure. They always he's as, it, as it was talking about it, and uh, there are those who who've never come to terms uh, with the change. And if they could, are there those who would reverse it immediately? And those of us who are faith based, 
it's interesting to see the way God runs the world. Um, millions of Jews, a lot of people, including my own kids, don't realize, you know, what was going on behind the Iron Curtain and how so many millions were suffering um, at the hands of the Soviet leaders. And then, uh, and then this happens, again, whatever machinations from above, uh, you know, were set into motion. And all of a sudden, uh, you're talking about not only freedom for Jews, but you're talking about a massive increase in Jewish population in Israel and a complete change in, and, and, and even a change in local Jewish communities in the United States, depending on where you are. Just a, a, complete, uh, a complete revolution, all because of one man's um, either desire or you know, political maneuvering that he thought was necessary at the time. Yeah, I, I, it's not just one man, but it, it you know, and it was the culmination of a lot of uh, things. You have to go back to give Ronald Reagan credit, right. you know, for for his tough stand and for his uh, declarations. And remember, Mr. Gorbachev, take down this wall, and right. uh, he certainly deserves um, recognition. So it's never one person. It's right that some people rise to the moment, to the occasion, which is very important, and he did. But yeah. it, you have to remember the role of the United States, going back to the Jackson-Bannock Amendment and right. the other pressures that were brought to bear. Yeah, pretty amazing. Um, pretty amazing. Um, so last week we were discussing the uh, split between Smotrich and Ben Gvir. We did not realize that as we were speaking, they were meeting in uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's house, and he was brokering a deal to get the two of them to run together. How does this change uh, the how does this change the the Israeli election now? Uh, that's number one. Uh, but number two, does it put Bibi in an even stronger position than what we described last week? Uh, yes, uh, my answer y- yesterday might have been different than the answer today. And again, you know, nobody can predict what anything that happens in Israeli politics. But Netanyahu urged them to to merge because the fear is that one of them. Uh, would make the uh, cut, right. and therefore you lose those seats. What's in fact happening is by the merger of the two parties, they are losing seats right now, the latest uh, indications, and that they had more seats separately. They, um, and the, the numbers you know, for the right-wing coalition are very tenuous right now. They're not as high as they were a week ago. But that that well, means that, that, yeah, that vacillates, and that will go back and forth anyway. Pardon me. No, that means that there are just too many voters, or and I know the polls are not always accurate, but there are too many people in the electorate that favor Smotrich and don't like Ben Gvir, and too many that like Ben Gvir and don't like Smotrich, and that's why they're more than willing to vote for them separately, but not if they're a block. Or, 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 or yeah, and don't want to see the the um, merge. But you had that merger in, in the left also, where people right. then walk away from that party because they say that's not the party that I wanted to support. Right. Um, right. But that again, it will shift more, uh, and external factors will will play a role. I think when U.S. announces deals like this, and then the defense deal, the Gans's activities in Japan, and the other things I mentioned, and so many other things that are going on, all those things you know, have impact about whether people's confidence in them, and et cetera. Um, and you see that the, the shifting is really one seat, two seats up and down uh, in the various parties. Some that make the threshold, some that don't make the threshold. There, there are 
the religious parties and conflicts with each other too. So all of this is in flux. It's much too early when we're talking about a November 1st election. And now in Israel, you have the particular problem of, of Rosh Hashanah and Kippur and Sukkot, which limit the, the political campaigning. So they are going to be at it very strong, I think, in the next couple of weeks before Rosh Hashanah and have very limited time between then and November 1st to, uh, to get out into the hustings and, and campaign. Do you get the whole Pollard involvement in this election and uh, wavering whether he is supporting or not supporting certain candidates, et cetera? Like, is, is he just... Well, he... Yeah, I don't think it's such a great idea, but um, um, oh, because of somebody understands with the U.S., I guess. But the um, he had endorsed uh, uh, Barty and then um, said he saw statements and directions that don't indicate that um, it will be part of a right-wing coalition necessarily. It's a new fusion party. So uh, he withdrew, within 12 hours, he withdrew his endorsement. So, you know, Israeli politics is not a game for novices. This is right. it's so complicated that even the most experienced people don't know what the hell they're doing B- sometimes. Bibi B- B- <laughs> himself is uh, is, is learning on, the, on a and daily he's the basis. master of it. But, uh, yeah, and he's, uh, he has to learn, he, uh, you know. Too often, right. I mean, he, he, to... he goes ahead. I mean, look, look what you just described to us. He goes ahead and a week ago sets in motion this, this coalition block. And not realizing, as you just told us, that it, it, it could end up hurting the numbers, and the numbers are really important. I mean, we're talking about, you know, one or two mandates can completely, you know, move this election into a, someone's favor at this point. So, uh, or you end up again with a stalemate, or you, right? You know, it, it's very unpredictable. Unbelievable. By the way, you mentioned that we were talking about the Soviet Union's economy before. Uh, the Ukrainian economy, or at least very, very, very local Ukrainian economy, is uh, dependent on flights to and visits uh, to Uman for Rosh Hashanah. But now it looks like uh, it looks like um, Israel, the U.S., many people are discouraging their citizens from going there for Rosh Hashanah. Do you still think there'll be a crowd? I certainly would agree with those who want to discourage people from going. Because, you know, first of all, the people in Oman, they're always anti-Semitic incidents and stuff. And it is remarkable from all the people I've heard about what goes on there and tremendous. But I think this year people should exercise caution. Uh, I don't believe that the Russians will target Oman. That's not not been the pattern. They're not going to do But going there, people traveling around and, you know, you just need one misfired rocket to a misdirected rocket to to um, be a tragedy. So uh, I think if one year it can be limited and, you know, uh, people exercise more caution, it it's, will be the better part of wisdom. You know, it's funny because someone who was there said to me that the difference between Uman during Corona and Uman in a regular year is that during the regular years, a lot of authorities uh, come from Israel and help keep the peace and help and negotiate if there are problems between locals and and visitors, etc. And during Corona, that did not happen, and it, and it did lead, as you just said, to different episodes and incidents that, you know, uh, one would regret. And it looks like, again, if everyone's being discouraged from going this year, that maybe those authorities are again going to be staying away, and it could lead to further problems. Just speculation. I'm not trying to, you know, I'm just, I'm just tossing that out there, that, uh, that there is a difference uh, between the way it's being handled and organized uh, these days compared to when it was quote-unquote normal, when we didn't have the pandemic and uh, and wars to worry about. Um, 
Afghanistan possibly becoming an Abraham Accords member? Did you see this piece? Yeah, I, I wouldn't bet too much on that. Uh, you know, the Taliban haven't exactly expressed. Um, I mean, how does that even? Interest. How does that rumor even start? Because there are exchanges, and uh, the, the but there have been rumors about virtually every country. When I was in Australia, I heard I met with officials who who people talked about other countries as being potential. When I um, checked on it, it doesn't there doesn't seem to be very much verification in terms of. They're ready to move. I do think that there are countries who would be ready to cooperate. Look, everybody wants Israeli technology. Everybody wants the high tech, the water tech, the um, the energy. So there's a lot of things that make it attractive. But the Taliban's ideology would be so uprooted by uh, joining, I think, the Abraham Accords. There are many other countries that would come first. You know, people looking right, at right. Chad and, and Sudan, both of which have sort of indicated that Sudan side on, even though they don't, I don't think they have an official peace treaty with Israel. Finally, I mean, you mean, I mean, look, we're, we're seeing, we said this last week, we're seeing so many local uh, anti-Semitic uh, incidents. Um, a lot of videos are going viral. Um, the college campuses are no exception. Plus, I'm sure you saw at Berkeley, these student uh, organizations are now going into formal BDS mode and making sure not to invite any Zionist leaders to the campus. And this is now; these are now coalitions of student groups that are getting together in groups of eight or nine who are, you know, making it policy mm-hmm. at this point. Um, we, we, we can't lose focus on what's going on. There is a, uh, uh, there, there's obviously, there are obviously, um, you know, I- issues of, of crime, episodes, incidents that are going on in this country that need to be addressed in general. Uh, but let us not lose focus on the fact that very often Jews, and in the college campus case, Israel, are the targets. The campuses remain the battleground, the foremost battleground, but not exclusive. And it's not just against students. It's against faculty increasingly. And we saw the University of California, again, the incidents this week, they're hanging the banners, and the fact that the university administration came out against it. But I want to know, will those responsible be prosecuted? We have to make sure that in every case, and we'll make available legal support for students, for faculty, for, for the communities to pursue anybody who engages in these activities and the local Jewish communities have to get involved, but we have to hold to account the university administration. And again, in this case, they did speak out, but I don't know if they did it immediately or and, and under what pressure, but donors and alumni and others, we have to take it on, but it's not just there. As you see, the attacks in Williamsburg and Crown Heights against visible Jews, but that I think is a mistake when we talk about it because Jews who are not visible by virtue of their clothing are being attacked and are being subjected to, to even non-Jews who are suspected of being Jewish have been uh, beaten up. So this is a, a, a matter that we have to demand in terms of, of the judiciary, the revolving door justice. Uh, I saw that they said that of uh, over 100 cases, only one guy actually ended up in jail. The people are not being prosecuted. They're not being um, held to account in the appropriate way. Too many of these cases go unresolved. I think the police do pursue it, and they look at the the cameras, and people have been caught. But the problem is that they get caught and are out a few minutes later. Yep. And that if we have, again, this wave of you know knockouts where people – just you know, go on the streets and and knock uh, punch a Jew out, which was we saw a couple of years ago. 
police have to step in right now. The, the elected officials have to step in, and I want to see black leaders speaking out. I want to see religious leaders speaking out. I want to see people who who should be held to account for their silence and and for making it wholly unacceptable to uh, to engage in these activities. And and it's right, left, center. It's Muslim, black. It's whatever the source is. Jew hatred has become so commonplace, and we cannot become inured to it. We can't just accept these uh, the day-to-day things where little children can get slapped on the street or punched, where old women are 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 mistreated, uh, where uh, elderly people are. Where I mean, this or young people shouldn't. It's not an age-based thing, and it doesn't matter whether we're visible or not. That's not an excuse for saying, "Well, there was a very visible Jew in there before he got attacked." That's just an excuse to say they mean those Jews and not all Jews. No, it's all Jews, and all Jews have to respond and hold to account everybody else to be able that they have to speak up and denounce it. Well said. Malcolm Holine, Vice Chairman, Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Thank you, Malcolm. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak again next week. Uh, good Shabbos to you. Be well. Uh, Malcolm Holine, every Friday, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time with a weekly update here at JM in the AM.